As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Father, what a great confession Peter and those 12 made. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your incredible grace that you, by the Spirit of God, stir our hearts when we're dead in sin and show us our need for forgiveness. And I pray today that you would do that once again in our midst here in, in Bluffton and Hilton Head and Graniteville and Grays and those who are live streaming with us this morning that you would help people who've never met him to know him, and those who have met him, that we would journey together in this incredible race to know him more intimately. So as we open your word, we open our hearts to you. We need your help to understand what you've inspired by the Spirit of God through the pen of the Apostle Paul. So help us to see the truth that is here and to be more than those who would just hear the word, but those who are willing to obey and apply it to our lives. You said in doing so, we find true freedom. Father, help me, fill me, use this message for the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Take God's word, would you? Philippians chapter 3. We're in that chapter in the epistle to the Philippians, whose entire theme, like the book of Revelation, which we've been studying, is knowing the Lord. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. And so in some of your English Bibles, it doesn't say the revelation, it says the apocalypse. And the word means to unveil, to uncover. And so as we've been studying revelation, if all you see are plagues and judgments and beasts and destruction, and you don't see the Lord Jesus, then you've missed the meaning of the book. It's all about him. In fact, Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. The whole Bible is about the Lord Jesus. He's the hero of scripture. And the revelation, which we'll pick up again in our next session together, is not to conceal, but it's to reveal, it's to help us to get to know Jesus more intimately. And so I thought it would be helpful because we still have another three, maybe four months left before we finish the revelation to hit the pause button and to keep in perspective what we are trying to do as we work through that incredible book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Here in Philippians, Paul expresses his earnest desire to know Jesus more intimately. In fact, if you are born again, the Bible teaches that you've received eternal life. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent. It's more than just heaven. It's more than just having your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Eternal life is a relationship with the living God. And knowing Christ is the theme here of this third chapter because God did not simply save you from something, but he saved you to someone. He didn't save you just from his wrath. He saved you into a relationship. He wants to deliver us not just from the wrath our sin deserves, but he also wants us to come to know him because of what sin is destroyed. Listen to what the prophet said in the Old Testament concerning the New Testament. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new testament, a new covenant. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. What a promise that God makes. And you hear that cry here in this third chapter. In fact, I want you, as I read our text this morning, to take special note of the little word count. You might want to underline it or to circle it. It's a word that means to evaluate, to assess. And Paul talks about certain things that he counted, and it's important that we assess our values, that we take an inventory this morning, because there are many people who have a set of values, but it's the wrong set. And even some Christian people who have enough of the right values to get them into the kingdom of God, but not really to run the race that God has for you. So I want to begin Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1, though our focus will be on verses 4 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me. It is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection." And the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, let me remind you of the context, picking it up here in verse 1. He begins with the word finally. It tells you there's a change in subject. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. If you remember in the chapter that preceded this, Christ is described as the humble servant who left the glory and splendor of heaven and took on our humanity and humbled himself even to the death on a cross. And he gives us an example to follow. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul will write. We're not merely to look out for our own interests, but for the interests of other people. And then he goes and he applies it to the Philippians, and he highlights a few people in that church who were anything but humble. They were filled with arrogance and pride. And in every church, there are members like that. There are prideful church members, and there's some pride in all of us. And God wants to root that out. That's why he commands us not to look out just for our own interest, but for the interests of others. But some of the arrogance and some of the pride came not from true church members, but fake church members, people who were not true believers. So he gives a strong warning in verse 2. Notice, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, 
Beware of the false circumcision. That's a statement that describes Jewish people in the first century. And of course, Judaism was the dominant religion in the first century apart from paganism. And there are many Jews in the world, even today, but across the ancient world in which Paul lived through the diaspora. And most believe that because they were the chosen nation, God had to choose a nation by which he could bring the Savior. And he chose the descendants of Abraham to pull that off. But some assumed that because they were a member of the chosen nation, that they were automatically going to heaven. And to show and to prove that they were members of the chosen nation, the head of the household and all the males in it would be circumcised. Beware of the dogs. You've all seen that sign, beware of the dog. I was on the Easter Blitz last year, and I wanted to sign, beware of the dog. And believe me, I didn't walk up to the door, especially when it says, beware of the wolf. You know, then you really pull back. What do dogs do? They bite, they bark, they attack sometimes. And here he uses the word for dog, not of a friendly pet. It's a specific Greek word that describes a dangerous animals. And this is the d- term for dogs that Jews usually apply to Gentiles. But here, this is a term that is used to describe these Jewish people. Listen, some of the meanest people in the world are religious people. And he is dealing here with false teachers who are like dogs. Verse 3, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's describing here true believers in Jewish terms. We are of the true circumcision. Now, circumcision in Paul's day had become almost like a tattoo is in our day. Circumcision was important. God dictated it first to Abraham and all the servants in his home. And then he specified on the eighth day, a little baby boy was to be circumcised. And Jewish people still do that. I've been praying for a little baby. His name is Caleb. He's been in a hospital in Tel Aviv. He should have been dead three months ago, but he's still alive. And I asked uh, after he had been born a couple of weeks, the rabbi called me and said, I, I want you to pray for our grandson. I said, what's his name? He said, well, we haven't named him. I said, you haven't named him yet? He said, no. He said, we name our babies when they are circumcised, the boys. Because he's so sick, we have not gone through that right yet. Well, circumcision was an outward act, and it was something that God ordained. And it goes back all the way to the opening chapters of Scripture, where God taught the principle, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Adam and Eve, with their fig leaf religion through the works of their own hand, tried to cover their shame. And so then the first death in all the universe took place, that God slayed innocent animals and he gave them coats of skin to wear. And God taught the principle, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so he received Abel's offering because Abel came on faith. He came on the basis of what God had revealed that a blood sacrifice was necessary, but animal blood could never take away sin. And all the way through the Old Testament, there are rivers of blood. God said man must die. Well, God is spirit. You can't nail a spirit and create blood. Angels cannot die for you. They too are spirit beings, but they're not human. 
No, a man must die for his sin, and so the incarnation, a child will be born, and the child's name will be called Mighty God. And so God took on our humanity, and through this little mark that you put on a boy eight days old when he was circumcised, a little bloody rite continued to teach that thing. And Paul says, we're of the true circumcision, because in the New Testament, there is the external act of circumcision, but in Romans 2, there is the internal circumcision. If you're here today, and your heart has never been circumcised, and you die that way, you'll never see the inside of the kingdom of God. Jesus said you must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. We are of the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. Christ said to the woman at the well that those who worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. He wants people to know him to be born again. God is spirit, and the people who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. But these evil dogs, these false teachers who taught that you needed to be circumcised, they're called Judaizers, to enter God's kingdom. He said, they're not like us. We worship in the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. Their mark was external. Paul's mark was internal. And when you're born again, the Bible says you are marked by the Spirit of God. And without that mark, when Christ comes, he'll not take you home. Now, with that backdrop, he gives a, bio, a biographical sketch, an autobiographical sketch of himself that tells us so much, not just of an unbeliever who needs to meet Christ in salvation, but for the born-again, blood-bought child of God to know him more intimately and more closely. And so notice beginning in verse 4, his description first of what the Apostle Paul once boasted. What the Apostle Paul once boasted. Now, in contrast to those who place confidence in themselves and in their religiosity, Paul said, although I might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's meeting these Jewish religious men as a Jew on their own turf. And like so many people today, there are folks who put their confidence in their religion rather than in a righteousness that you cannot earn or merit that God must give to you. And if Paul was more religious and more Jewish than any of these Judaizers, then he certainly could get into God's kingdom in that way. And he certainly was more Jewish than many of the people who were actually against him and opposing him. In fact, uh, he said that, by the way, when he says this, uh, he's, I put no confidence in the flesh, you could paraphrase it, I put no confidence in circumcision, but I think he broadens it much more than that, as we'll see in the verses that follow. Not just in this outward act, but any act that one might perform to have a right standing with God. And of course, there was a change that took place in Paul's life. There was an event on a road that led to Damascus, north of Jerusalem, and there on the Damascus road, Paul had the gospel revealed to him that his righteousness was like a filthy rag, that he needed a righteousness that comes from God. I was down on Ladies Island one night and sharing the gospel with a man. He said, I, I got to stop you, Pastor Carl. He said, how good must one be to go to heaven? 
I mean, how good do you have to be? I said, perfect. He said, then I'm not going to make it. I said, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Man's righteousness falls short of the needed righteousness to enter the kingdom of God. And righteousness is one of those things like perfection or wholeness that loses its meaning and definition when you try to divide it. You can't be half perfect. To be half perfect is to be imperfect. You can't have a whole half of an orange because either you have a whole orange or half an orange, but you can't have a whole half. And you either have a complete righteousness by which God deems you as holy or you have no righteousness at all. It's kind of like a boat chained up to a dock, series of links in that chain. You only need to break one link for the boat to float down the river. Now, you can break every link and it will float down the river, but you only need to break, break one. And sometimes we look at people who seemingly have broken every link of the law. We call them murderers and criminals and reprobates and depraved. And, and next to them, we think we're fine because we've only broken one link. But James reminds us, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And if that boat is headed towards the waterfall, it doesn't matter if you've broken every link or just one link, you're headed for the same destruction and the same disaster. So as a fallen man, Paul was the best of them. So notice how he describes himself, beginning here in verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. When Paul was a little baby, eight days old, with no say from himself, his parents had him circumcised. That's what Jewish people did because God commanded that. And of course, what circumcision was to the old covenant, there are many people today who want to make baptism to the new covenant, and there's no comparison. But because some people make that analogy, they come up with infant baptism. When you read the Bible, you will be hard-pressed to find a single verse where an infant is ever baptized. Now, they may sprinkle a little water on them, but there's a word for sprinkling, rod titzo, never used in reference to the ordinance of baptism. I mean, it's an oxymoron to take a little baby and sprinkle the child with water and call it baptism, because the word baptizo literally means to immerse, to submerge, to put under. And it's only immersion that pictures death, burial, and resurrection. But nonetheless, because some make circumcision analogous to baptism, here's their rationale. And they would say this is their best argument for infant baptism. Historically, you have to go to the late third century to find the first record of infant baptism. There is a reason the early church didn't practice infant baptism. But nonetheless... They would say, well, just because you can't find it didn't mean they didn't do it. Well, our authority is not what history is recorded, though it may affirm what God has said. Our authority ultimately is the Scripture. But because there are some who allegorize the Bible, and they say, well, God is no longer chosen the Jew. The church is the new Israel. God's done with Israel. They see no significance John Piper, Alistair Begg, good men whom I love. I've had Alistair preach in this pulpit, but I differ with him on this issue concerning Israel. The church is not the new Israel. 
Israel is Israel. And God used the Jews to bring the first coming of Christ, and he will use them to bring about the second coming. And so most covenant theologians, they have to either not preach the book of Revelation or they spiritualize half the book, and they apply a different principle of interpretation to Revelation because they don't know what to do with the book of Revelation. But here's their reason. They say, well, obviously it was adult men as recorded in Genesis who were the first generation of men to be circumcised, and after that, God specifically said children on the eighth day. They come into the record of Acts. And they say, well, obviously, every record is believers, the first generation being those who are able to understand the gospel, though some try to read household baptism to include infants. There are five household baptisms in the New Testament, and four of them, it specifically says that everyone in the house specifically believed, something the little baby can't do. But babies are not accountable. There comes a point of accountability, and I say point, not age. The Bible doesn't speak of an age of accountability. I think it's different for different children. If God said, well, the age of accountability is 12, some parents wouldn't get serious with their children until they're 11. But if a little child dies, as Scripture is clear through illustrations Christ gave through 2 Samuel, Jonah, and other places, that little child goes to heaven. But a child reaches a point in their life where they are fully accountable. And when we reach that point, the Bible can describe us by nature as a child of wrath. Now, that's pretty serious. By nature, a child of wrath. That's how God describes us in Ephesians 2 in our pre-conversion state. That's why Jesus, who is incarnate love, said the one who believes in the Son has life. The one who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. So they say, well, this first generation adults, then little children, and so now they apply to baptism. First generation believers, but now we need to baptize our little babies in covenant with God. The problem with that is when a Jew was circumcised, it brought him into a theocracy, but not necessarily into conversion. Many Jews are recorded in the Old Testament in the Tanakh of, of dying going straight to hell. And they had all had circumcision, and they were a member of God's covenant people. Jesus had to deal with such people. He said, if you were children of Abraham, you would show that you were converted. You would do the deeds of Abraham, but you don't have the faith of Abraham. So circumcision in no way saved a person, not to mention it was only done for little boys where baptism is done for male and female, and God never specifically commands infants to be baptized as he did little babies. So to make that comparison is just really rather silly, and you're trying to take a theological tradition or system and impose it upon the Word of God. Let's read further. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Paul was a Jew-Jew. That is, there's two kinds of Jews in Scripture. There are some who are Gentiles who become Jew. You say, how can a Gentile become a Jew? Just read Esther chapter 8. They're converted. They believe the God of Israel is the one true God, and so God calls them Jews. But they're not Jews in terms of being descendants of Abraham. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm not just a Jew religiously like those in the book of Esther. I am a Jew nationally, ethically. I am a true descendant of Abraham. I have Jewish parents. 
We lived in Texas for five years, and very often we were just there a few weeks ago, and I saw on the back of a number of pickup trucks, native Texan. I'll tell you, Texans are proud to be Texans. I love the spirit they have in that state. But then I saw another sticker they're still putting on the back of their trucks. And I'll tell you, there's more pickup trucks in Texas than any other place I've been in America. And one said, I got here, meaning to Texas, as quick as I could. In other words, it's one thing to be a native Texan, but you might as well at least get to Texas and live here if you're not a native Texan. Paul is saying, look, I'm not just a Jew religiously. I was born a Jew, look further, of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. To be of the tribe of Benjamin was to be of a great tribe. Benjamin produced the first king for Israel. But beyond that, if you remember, there was a time of religious apostasy where the 12 tribes split, 10 northern tribes. Originally, the whole 12 are called Israel, but when they split, the 10 northern are called Israel, and the two southern, after the larger tribe, is called Judah. And in those two southern tribes was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin refused to apostatize. The 10 northern tribes, they said, well, we'll establish our own place of worship. And of course, uh, that's what the discussion was over with the woman at the well. Where do we worship, on this mountain or in Jerusalem? And of course, God had specifically said in Leviticus 17, there's only one place and one altar on the world where you must worship me. Benjamin did not defy that. He did what God said and refused to go with the 10 northern tribes. Look further circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is now moving from the traits which he inherited to those traits which he earned, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now think your way through this. Paul's born in a place called Tarsus, that's in Asia, Asia Minor. But unlike many of the Jews that are described in Acts 6, if you remember, there was a dispute between the Hebraistic Jews and the Hellenist Jews. The Hellenist Jews were those who typically lived outside of Israel, but because they were pious and obedient to the Scripture, three times a year they would come into Israel as God had specified for three particular festivals. And of course, on this particular year for Pentecost, it was no ordinary Pentecost. It had been going on for thousands of years. But what was pictured in Old Testament Pentecost now came true, and nobody wanted to leave. This is what we have prayed for, what God had promised, the Messiah has come. And of course, people needed uh, resources because their own personal travel resources had, had dropped out. And, and so there was this dispute between these two groups of Jewish people. The Hellenistic Jews were those who were raised and born outside of Israel, and in the process, they adopted the Greek culture. Paul said, look, I may be from Tarsus, but I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a Jew to the core. I haven't adopted the Hellenistic practices and cultural expressions. I am a Jew's Jew, look further, as to the law of Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. There are several groups of religious men. There are the Sadducees, who were Sadducee, because they denied the resurrection, they denied the afterlife, they denied angels, whereas Pharisees, it means literally a separated one, 
And this was a group of men who rose up during the intertestament period between Malachi and Matthew, that 400-year time frame. And the Pharisees believed every word of Tanakh of the Old Testament. They believed it was entirely inspired. The problem with the Pharisees is they took a lot of their traditions and they applied it to the law, and they made them equal with the law. And so Jesus had to continually tear apart their traditions and show how they were not true and consistent with what God had actually revealed in Scripture. But he's saying, look, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm not some liberal. I'm not one who denies the authority of Scripture like many in our day do. I am one who believe in every word. And as a Pharisee, he would have fasted regularly. He would have prayed three times a day. He would have given a tithe of all that he had. Then he says, verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I'm not just a Pharisee. I'm a zealous Pharisee. I have so much zeal, I am willing to persecute those whom Paul thought were in a false, evil way. They called themselves Christians. Paul didn't just persecute Christians. He murdered Christians. He participated under his leadership as a Pharisee of Pharisees in having God's people executed. And of course, the very first Christian martyr in all the Bible, Paul's responsible for as he executes Stephen. And the Holy Spirit, of course, inspires Luke to describe Paul as one who is ravaging the church. And Paul, in his own words before King Agrippa, said this, and as I punished them often, speaking of Christians, Jewish Christians, and all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Why did he want them to blaspheme? <laughs> so he could kill them. So he could soothe a guilty conscience and have a justification for the murder of more of these Jewish Christians. Would the Judaizers take pride in their religious zeal? Absolutely. Did they seek to persecute Christians? Just read the book of Acts. Paul says, been there, done that, and better than any of you. Religion can be very hateful, very, very mean. I heard about a little boy, and he ran into the living room holding a mouse, waving. He said, Mama, look what I did. I took a broomstick and I beat him, and then I ran over him with my bicycle, and then I stomped all over him. Look at him. And then he noticed the preacher sitting there, and he said, and then the Lord called him home to be with Jesus. <laughs> Religious, but mean. As the zeal of persecutor of the church is to righteousness which is in the law, notice, found blameless, not sinless. That would deny basic Jewish theology, but blameless. In good conscience, you could look at Paul's life, and you could say, overall, Paul lived a blameless life. You couldn't say, well, he's a thief, or he's a crook, or he's a hypocrite, or he's a pervert, or he's an adulterer. No, he was at the top of his class. As Judaism would have, blamed, uh, would have judged him, he was blameless. He basically did what he asked others to do. That's what Paul once boasted. Now, beginning in verse 7, I want us to consider what the Apostle Paul now discounted, what he now discounts. There came a day in the Apostle Paul's life when he saw that what he was like before an absolutely holy God was not sufficient. 
In fact, the key word in the whole paragraph is the word, three-letter word, but. There are different words from the Greek New Testament that we translate as but. This is the strongest one. This is the one where you just kind of slam your fist down on the pulpit, you circle it in red, you highlight it in yellow, a la but, but on the Damascus Road. When he met the living Savior, everything changed. He thought he was blameless. He will later say, I am the chief of sinners. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Having placed all of the assets in verses 5 and 6 on one side of the scale, which, by the way, again, the Judaizers loved, and having placed all of his religiosity on that scale... And then he looked at Jesus. He said, I count it all as loss. It is a loss. More than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 8 begins with the words, more than that, wanting to draw a strong contrast between those religious credits that were his to really knowing the Lord. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now, the word know here is not just know factually, but know personally. And a lot of people know God here in the mind, but not in the heart. And there are many people that Jesus describes in Matthew 7 who could recite the Apostles' Creed and say that they believe every word of it, and Jesus will say to them in the end, I never knew you, depart from me. It's a factual knowledge but not a personal knowledge. And yet Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you. In John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. It's going to be a shocker, my friends. Now, I think if there was ever a day in which we have cultural Christianity where you have people with a head knowledge but with no life change, they've never met the living God, it's the day that I live in. It's the day that you live in. People who know the plan of salvation but they've never met the man of salvation. Listen, it's interesting to read the testimony of demons in Scripture. Go through the Gospels. And every time you hear a demon speak, they speak with great orthodoxy. For instance, in Luke 4.34, that demon said, you are Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Holy One of God. It's a beautiful statement. It's a marvelous confession of faith. The Bible says the demons believe and tremble. But Paul says, more than that, I desire to know Emmanuel, God with us. He describes him here as Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ that is, he's Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the promised one. He is Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, Jesus in, in English. He's the one who saves. He is Lord, he is God, he is king, he is master. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and may count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I may count them as rubbish. The Greek word here is skubala, and it's translated in different ways. The NAS says rubbish. Some of your English Bibles you have in your lap render it waste or dung or refuse or worthless trash. 
It's used in the first century literature to describe excrement. That's what it's used to describe from. And so maybe we soften it a little bit by translating it the way we do as rubbish, but it's something that is worthless, meaningless. If you said to Paul, well, Paul, you've given up all these great things you once boasted about. Don't you miss them? He'd say, I don't miss them any more than when the rubbish man takes out my trash. It's stuff I don't want. What loss is there? I don't weep over my trash when the garbage man takes it away. I haven't given up anything. I count all those things that men say are pluses as mere dung in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That brings us to the third point. You still with me? He speaks of what he had in terms of what he once boasted. He speaks of what he discounted in terms of what he Uh, Now discounted, and third, finally, what he desired, what the Apostle Paul desperately wanted. And so now in verses 9 through 11, Paul speaks of four of the deepest desires of his heart as it relates first to justification and then to sanctification. And we'll explain those words if that's new to you. Look, if you will, now in verse 9 as it unfolds. It may be found in him, in Jesus not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, verse 8 ends with a subordinate clause here, that I may gain Christ. And verse 9 begins with that little three-letter word, chi, and. And so verse 9 is really giving us a further explanation of what specifically it means to gain Christ. Paul is looking to a future time when he will stand before God's tribunal, trusting solely on the merits of Christ's righteousness that was imputed to his account. He wants to be found in him in the sphere of blessings with Christ's righteousness. And God forbid that you be found any other way. You are either this morning in Christ or you are outside of Christ. You're either lost or saved. You're either in the kingdom of God or you are still in the kingdom of the evil one. You say, well, how precisely can I know where I stand? Well, it all depends on where you are trying to find your righteousness. Paul wants to be identified with Jesus. Look again in verse 9. It may be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law. You could say derived by human effort. You ask a lot of folks, why should God let you into heaven? They begin to rattle off things they've done but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is not earned, but comes from God on the basis of faith. And I hope that you do not want to appear before an absolutely holy God in your righteousness, because if you do, you will regret it for all of eternity. We need a righteousness that comes through God, that comes through faith in Christ. And so he is really contrasting two different ways. Here's a verse every Christian should memorize it. It's one of the top 100 verses every Christian should know, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Do you know it? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that, here's the reason, we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is a great verse, one to apply to your own life when you fail and you remember that your righteousness is not achieved, 
But it is a great verse as Paul uses it evangelistically in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if you read the verses around it, you could fill in the pronouns. He, the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. The Scripture says he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. There on the cross, on Golgotha, he became sin for us. And by the way, you will never meet anyone in heaven who has not been saved by Jesus. Now, they may have not known the Jews and those Gentile proselytes that his name would be Yeshua because God didn't reveal that until he revealed it to Joseph and Mary. But they knew a Savior was coming, and God took their sin, and He looked down the corridors of the future, and He took your sin, and once for all time, Christ died for our sins, Hebrews 10. He bore our sin in His body on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that, here's the reason, so that we might become, because we weren't before, the righteousness of God. That's what you need to go to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, dear friend... You must be as righteous and as holy as God. And the only way for you to have that righteousness is to have it in Christ. If if this bulletin here or this watch here, I dropped my bulletin, this watch here represents me and this Bible represents Christ, I am in Christ. Now, there was a time I was not. There was a time in my life when I reached a point of accountability where I had the faculties and the ability to understand the gospel. I was explaining to my grandsons how I'd nearly lost my life at the age of 17 on an accident I had, a, a tractor that rolled over and my arm was caught in the blade housing. And had my dad not been there to make a tourniquet, I would have bled out in a matter of minutes. And I told my grandsons, if I had died, I would have went to hell. Because I was way past an age of accountability. Way past. Listen, I don't care if you're 12 or 9012 or 92 or 112 or whatever it is. Listen, my friend, if you are outside of Christ, you will die without Him. And you'll go to a place where God doesn't want anyone to go. Hell was never designed for man, it was designed for the devil and his angels. So when you're in Christ, when you trust Christ, he's going to affirm this in a moment, the death, burial, and the resurrection, then God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. He cannot live inside of you when you're in your unrighteousness. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. It doesn't say our bad deeds are like filthy rags. He uses a word that describes the best of deeds. The best of your deeds, your righteousnesses are as filthy rags because every good deed you've done has been contaminated by sin. Maybe motive, something apart from Christ. But when you're placed in Christ and you receive a new mark, you're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption, you become a new creation, you become a new person. And you can come to know God, but you can know Him now in a more profound way as you grow. So here was Paul. Look, some of us are in Christ, and we know that we're saved legitimately. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we've become a child of God, but we know Him in a babyfied way. 
We don't really know him intimately and profoundly and desire to know him more profoundly. Here's Paul. He wanted to know Christ more profoundly. Notice verse 10. He moves now from justification to sanctification. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Verse 10 concerns his sanctification. We use the word sanctification to describe our spiritual growth. Justification happens the moment you call on Christ in faith and you are declared righteous. In fact, some English translations translate it that way with two English words. It doesn't say you become righteous, you're declared righteous. God imputes to your account a righteousness that you cannot earn or achieve. Sanctification is becoming in your experience what God has declared you to be, that I may know him in a more intimate way. Listen, there are many of us within the sound of my voice who have been saved by grace, but we're not growing in grace. And there's a command in Scripture to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. We know enough of the grace of God to be saved, but we're not growing. But listen, when you obey what you know, you grow. And when you know the Lord more intimately, you love Him more profoundly. And you obey Him more. And every time you obey Him, what does He do? John 14, 21. He reveals more of Himself to you. And you know him more intimately, and you want to love him more passionately, and he shows more of himself to you. Listen, if your Christian life is dull, and you've lost your passion and zeal, it's because something has been short-circuited in your Christianity. Paul wanted to know Christ in his resurrection power. For what purpose? that he might live the Christian life. He wanted to live a holy life. He said the grace of God that brings us salvation teaches us and instructs us to deny worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in the present age. But you can't live this holy, righteous life that you want to do unless you experience the resurrection power of Christ. That's why he can say, the good that I wish I cannot do, I do the very thing I don't want to do. So he wants to know more profoundly this power. That is, he will say in Romans 6, 4, that I might walk in newness of life. Now, when you come to Christ for justification, you come in a bankrupt state. You admit you are broken, you can't fix it, that you need a Savior to redeem you. Well, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, now walk in him. You are to walk in that same brokenness, that same bankruptcy, that you cannot live the Christian life apart from the resurrection power of Christ. Paul said, I, I want to live in his power. I want to live holy. And two, that I might know him also in the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul wished to join Christ in his sufferings. He wanted to suffer like Christ suffered. Now, what did he mean by that? Understand, it's not what happens every year in the Philippines and other countries. Every year around Easter in the Philippines, you know, they start nailing people to crosses, and they take whips, and they start whipping people's back and taking the skin off, and some even put a crown of thorns on their head, and the blood's dripping down, and, and they come to this verse of Scripture where we want to know Christ and His sufferings. So we're going to experience this, and of course, they think that those sufferings somehow are efficacious in making them righteous before God. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's good Catholic doctrine. It's bad Bible doctrine. Listen, 
the fellowship of his sufferings. If you know Jesus this morning, if you're a young person here, if you're a college student home for the summer, you already know what it's like. I've been up on those campuses, USC, Clemson. You go up on a Friday night, you walk through the dorms, you talk about reprobate lifestyles. You talk about a depraved sin openly living itself out. You can go on almost any secular campus in America and you'll see it. Look, they even try to pull it off on the Christian campuses. And then those that have standards, you're usually asked to leave. But here's the point. In the culture that we live in, because we're becoming more and more like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, if you as a young man or if you as an adult choose to live for Jesus and not to compromise, indeed, here's your promise. We used to have uh, years ago in Wednesday night meetings when I was a new Christian, we would have uh, a promise testimony time where people would stand up and they would say a promise from Scripture that they were standing on. I never heard anyone claim 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So here's Paul. He recognized that he's saved to serve and he's saved to suffer because if you're like Christ, the servant is not greater than his master. You will suffer like Christ. And Paul wants to suffer for Christ's sake, and he's already promised that he is going to suffer. For Ananias told Paul when Jesus met him, he said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. But Paul says, I want to suffer like Jesus did. In what sense? Was, was Paul wanting to be persecuted? Of course not. No person in their right mind would want to be. But he wanted to respond like Jesus responded there were probably times when, you know, I mean, just read 2 Corinthians and that record there towards the end of the book of persecution after persecution after persecution. And I have no doubt there are times in Paul's life where he, he had to have gotten upset. These dirty, nasty rascals, man, they just won't stop. And it would be very easy to get even bitter. But what did Jesus do? And while being reviled... He did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. I want to have the attitude, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all sorts of evil against you falsely. On my account, not because you're obnoxious, but because you're living for Jesus. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted to exemplify his Savior even in the midst of persecution Look at verse 11. He concludes, in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Actually, if you look in the margin of the New American Standard, it gives you the literal rendering, which I think here is more helpful. If somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, some read verse 11 and it sounds too iffy, like Paul is a little uncertain of his future and his eternal security. Well, you know that can't be true because Paul hammered home the doctrine of eternal security more clearly and more profoundly and more in a, in a detailed way than any other writer of the New Testament. Even in this epistle, he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He said, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I, I don't know what would be better for me to stay on in this earthly body and to serve you. It would 
far better for me to depart and to be with Jesus. He had no doubt he was going to heaven. He says in 1.6 of Philippians, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what does he mean here where he says, if somehow to obtain from the resurrection from the dead? Well, it's an important phrase, and people have interpreted this in different ways. Some say, well, this is just an expression of Paul's humility. It's not an expression of doubt, but just humility, the kind of humility expressed in verses 8 through 10. Well, I suppose that's possible, but it's still difficult to account for his iffiness. Others have suggested, well, this iffiness is in reference to timing. Because in chapter 1, if you know it, Paul thought, I'm going to die. But then it seems like the chain rattles there on the floor, and he thinks, well, maybe I'm not going to die yet. Somehow, not sure when, but somehow, God's going to raise me up. And they say that the iffiness is in reference to timing. Others would say, well, no, he has it settled in his mind. He's not going to die next week. But it's an iffiness in reference to means, that somehow, whatever means God chooses to use, he is going to allow me to experience the resurrection from the dead. And at least those interpretations are consistent. Sometimes you don't always know what a passage means, but you can know what it doesn't mean. And when you come to a text that is unclear, a good principle is you interpret what is clear, uh, unclear in light of what is very clear. And he's already affirmed the eternal security of the believer, even within this short epistle. But it's interesting the word that he uses, and the preciseness comes out here in the NASB. It doesn't say, as in some translations, the resurrection of the dead. What some translations do is they paraphrase a little bit. And they do that to make it a little bit more readable. But sometimes to make it more readable, you lose the literalness. The NASB says resurrection from the dead. And the Bible makes a distinction between those who will be uh, resurrection from the dead and the resurrection of the dead. In fact, you see the word resurrection in verse 10. And you'll see it again appears in verse 11. It's actually two different words. There's the word, the verb anastasios. We get our word, and then the word anastasis when it's a noun form. A little girl was in the church, and I saw her name tag as Anastasius. I said, oh, that's a beautiful name. I said, do you know what that means? She said, no. I said, it means resurrection. Your parents, I don't know if they were Christians, but that's a beautiful name. It means, it's the Greek word, comes directly from the Greek, right, in English. Well, it's verb form here, but the verb for resurrection in verse 10 is different from the verb for resurrection in verse 11. There's a difference in two letters, ek. See those signs there? Exit. Ek. It's the Greek word that means out of. Paul is talking about the resurrection out of the dead the out of resurrection. And he describes it in two key critical passages in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a reference to the rapture. Paul was hoping that he would be a part of the out of resurrection from the dead because when the rapture happens, all the people who are left behind are spiritually dead people and he'll be brought out of it. Now, Paul assumed that he might be a part of the rapture. Listen to the pronoun that he uses in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain 
shall be caught up, the word harpazo, rapto in Latin, so we have the word rapture in English, call it what you want. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul lived with the expectation that he could be a part of that final generation that would not see physical death, but in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall not all sleep, will not all die, we shall be changed, this perishable will put on the imperishable. He believed that he might see the rapture in his lifetime. Question, was he right to expect and to think about the rapture? Absolutely. Now, there are liberal theologians like William Barclay, and why Christians sell his books in Christian bookstores and read his books is beyond me because he denies so many of the miracles in the Bible in his commentary. So that's a commercial not to buy books by William Barclay. He's dead now. He knows better, but nonetheless, he said Paul was wrong. He said Paul thought he was going to see the rapture. No, he was right to expect the rapture, because the Bible tells us we are to be looking and longing and waiting Looking for, listen to this, Titus 2, looking for the blessed hope. That's the rapture in the context. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are to long, we are to look for phase one of the second coming. Phase two is not in the air, it's to the earth. Phase one, the rapture of Christ's return. No prophecies have ever needed to be fulfilled. It could have happened in the first century. It could have happened a week after Pentecost. And then all the remaining prophecies would be fulfilled in the seven-plus years that would follow. But it didn't. And we're still waiting. But what is amazing is that the generation of Christians who are alive are seeing prophecies fulfilled in this day that have never been fulfilled in nearly 2,000 years. And that tells you that the rapture that precedes the second coming is that much closer. Paul said, look, I would love to be a part of that generation, the out of resurrection from the dead generation, who are taken off the earth from this generation of dead people and into heaven. Now, how are we going to apply this to our lives this morning? Let me make three applications. One, it might be helpful to ask and answer for yourself, are you satisfied where you are in your spiritual growth? You know, sometimes it's helpful to write these things down. We don't want to be those who just hear the Word and not respond and obey. And sometimes, you know, you go home and tomorrow you won't even remember. what I don't know. Was he in Revelation yesterday? I forgot, honey. What was he in? We don't even remember the sermon. And we become like those who hear the word and we don't seek to apply it. It's a question I have to ask myself, and I hope you'll ask yourself Have you lost the driving zeal and passion of your life to be like Christ? Listen to what he will say in the next verse, in verse 12 of this chapter. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become teleos, mature, perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. When Paul was an unconverted Jew, he actually thought he had arrived spiritually. I mean, if anyone had good reasons to put confidence in the flesh, it was this guy, but next to Christ's righteousness, he counted it as all but dung. 
But Paul wanted to know Christ not just in a saving way, but in an intimate way. He wanted to keep growing. He wanted to know the power of his resurrection. He wanted to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul had been a believer 30 years when he pens Philippians. I've been a Christian almost 45 years, and you know what? I haven't arrived. I'm not spiritually perfect. I'm not morally perfect. But neither are you. And I hope you want more. Because I'm telling you, if you are content where you are this morning, and you have lost your zeal and your passion to know Christ in a holy way, in the power of his resurrection, and yea, even in the fellowship of his sufferings, and you're just content with coming to church, and you've lost your passion and zeal for Christ, you're in a very dangerous place. Paul will ask us in verse 17 to join in following my example. This fellow who had admitted that he had not arrived spiritually, he had not yet attained to it, but he said, follow my example, continue with me. Paul, don't you already have a knowledge of Christ? Yes, but I want to know him better. Aren't you a, a growing, mature Christian? Yes, but mature Christians have not arrived. They have a grown up and a growing relationship with Christ. Secondly, let's ask, how much does knowing Christ mean to you? How much does knowing Christ mean to you this morning? This inversion of values goes way beyond one's entrance to salvation. Paul here is speaking of the whole of life in this paragraph. He deals not just with justification, but sanctifications. I mean, do we really regard all things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? For Paul, knowing Christ was the ultimate goal, the ultimate asset compared to everything else. Everything else was a liability. He had found the pearl of great price. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Paul was thrilled that he had a relationship with Christ, that he had been saved, but that was not enough for him. He wanted to know Jesus more intimately. And if you don't want to know Jesus better, there's, there's a problem. Something has crowded that out and suffocated that zeal, and it's called sin. We sing that song, Knowing You, the author took the words of that hymn that we sing right out of this paragraph of Scripture. Let me remind you, all I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own, all I once thought gain I have counted lost, spent and worthless now compared to this. 
Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. I hope that's your heart today. Finally, have you ever come to know Christ at all? I want you to know him. You say, Pastor, where do I begin? You must be born again. Being born again is pretty important. Jesus said, unless you are born again, everyone in this room can tell me your birthday. You need to have two birthdays. Unless you're born again, Jesus said, you'll not see, you'll not comprehend spiritual things. And some people, when I preach on Sunday morning, I can read them. I've been doing this for 40 plus years. And sometimes I think they're never coming back. And many times they don't. Because they're having this argument in their mind. This is nuts. This preacher is off his gourd. Because they have a natural mind, an unregenerate mind. And a natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus said you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will never see the inside of heaven unless you are born twice. That's why Paul can write, it is a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost of all. There must be a point in your life where you own your sin. The Bible calls it repentance. And Jesus said, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. You need to change your mind. You need to be willing to say your sin is what keeps you from God. It's evil. It needs to be forgiven and changed. But understand, there's a decision of the will that you must make. You must own your sin and trust Jesus. It's like getting on an airplane. If an airplane is going from point A to point B and you don't get on the airplane, you'll miss the flight. I was coming home from an international flight and I was whooped. I had literally preached about 12, 16 hours a day for 10 days. And there I was in Baltimore waiting for the final leg of the flight. And I got into a conversation with an elderly woman. It was a divine appointment. And I knew I had a couple of hours. And I got into a conversation. In the midst of the conversation, they changed the gates. And I didn't know it. And she was filled with questions, and we went after question after question. And by the time we were done, she didn't care how many people were around and listening. She bowed her head, and she asked Jesus Christ to save her that day. I said, oh, that's not Charleston. <laughs> I go up, oh, we changed the gates an hour ago, and I missed my flight. My point is this. You can't keep putting the decision off because time will eventually catch up to you. God doesn't say tomorrow is the day of salvation. Next week is, he says, today is the day of salvation. And if you don't make a decision, eventually time will make the decision for you. And if you neglect Christ long enough, you will ultimately reject him. You don't come to Christ when you feel like coming to Christ. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. He stirs your heart. 
He convicts you of your sin. He shows you your need. And when he does, you would be so wise to respond because tomorrow may be forever too late. Now, our Father, thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that we can know the Lord Jesus, not just in justification that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, but we can know him more intimately You said, Lord Jesus, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me, my Father and myself will disclose ourselves to that person. Thank you for the joy and the incredible adventure of walking with you and knowing you more closely. May the allurements of this world never keep us from that. And if they have been, may we claim 1 John 1, 9 this morning that when we confess our sins, you are both faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. Help someone here, Father, who does not know whether or not they have been given Christ's righteousness. Help them with Paul to count all their achievements as but dung. For you said we are saved by grace and not by works. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. You said the free gift of God is eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, like with any gift, someone else has paid it, and you paid for it with your rich blood, that if we would be humble enough, be us 10 or, or 80, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Spirit of God, help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We love you, our Father. May we be good stewards of the gospel, even in the week that is in front of us. May we care for the souls of men and women and boys and girls as someone did for ours. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.